Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Great War. The most brutal conflict in the history of civilization. A century ago, 888,264 British men bravely went to fight for their country and never returned home. Amongst them, over 2,000 footballers who went from standing side by side on the field of play to fighting side by side on the killing fields of the Somme. This is the story of those players. Both Willie and I were trapped in a trench near the front in Somme, France. Willie turned to me and said, Goodbye, Mac. Best of luck and special love to my sweetheart Mary Jane and best regards to the lads at Orient. And no sooner had he jumped up out of the trench, my best friend of nearly 20 years was killed before my eyes. We find out how the Great War led English football to crisis point. On the home front, there was almost like a propaganda war going on between the critics of football and its defenders about, is it a patriotic game or is it doing its bit for the war effort? We also discover how amidst the brutality and the bloodshed, on Christmas Day 1914, it was football that briefly brought peace. It's about the humanity and it's about how men connect to each other. It's about the idea of um, finding something that they didn't have to speak about, that they could actually just do. Football is the universal game. The fact of the matter is, doesn't matter what your language is, people can play football. 100 years on, we also find out how football is remembering. We're a club that support the armed forces um, sort of all year round and um, being the first ever club to um, wear a camouflage shirt for one game um, to represent 100 years was a great honour for this football club. Ultimately, um, if it hadn't have been for these players and the administrators, then the clubs that people follow today, they wouldn't be in existence. I'm Mark Crossley. And I'm David Cameron Walker. And from the bordering to the battlefields, from the turnstiles to the trenches, and from the supporters to the Somme, this is the story of football and the Great War. Full time scores Football League Division 1, Manchester City 4, Bradford City 1. The Wednesday 3, Tuesday the 1st of September 1914. For football fans across Edwardian England, the best day of the year had arrived. The sun was beating down and anticipation crackled in the air as thousands of men, women and children flocked to Hyde Road in Manchester, the home of Manchester City, and Hillsborough in Sheffield, home of the Wednesday, for the first day of the brand new Football League season. Since its formation back in 1888, the Football League had rapidly been growing in membership and popularity. It was beginning to expand beyond its traditional heart in the Midlands and the North. 
There were two divisions plus the Southern League and attendances were up. In fact, over 121,000 crammed into Crystal Palace to watch the 1913 FA Cup final play between Aston Villa and Sunderland. Crowds were loud, passionate and increasingly tribal. Football was in the early stages of becoming the all-encompassing presence that we know today. My name is Steve Jenkins. I'm Deputy Chairman of Lake Orient Supporters Club and I'm also the author of They Took the Lead. Professional football was really the the big thing at the time as it is now I suppose it's similar in those days to the way that the Premier League's taken on board in this country um, certainly you didn't have all the internet connections and the message boards and the websites that's obvious but the fact that you would have supporters travelling to watch the, uh, their teams across the country you know who would have thought that you know to go down to London to watch your lads play in the smoke for example or for the, for the Orient to go to the south coast as a day out something special you know so the whole, the whole idea of professional football really was creating strength uh, identity with the local community so just as today football was in the blood it was played in the parks talked about on the terraces and poured over in the pubs. It was part of the fabric of everyday life. But back in an age before the internet, TV and even radio, how did fans know who the players were and how famous actually were they? Mark Metcalf is the world's most published author on books about football prior to the Great War. Well, it's true to say that if you'd gone along to a number of grounds, it would be difficult to work out from the opposing side necessarily who players were. What would have assisted you is that the teams lined up in what was the 2-3-5 formation. So two full-backs, three half-backs and five forwards. And if you were playing left-winger, you tended to stick in that position throughout the game. It's not entirely the case, but that would be the situation. So that would be of assistance. What wouldn't be of assistance would be the clawing wood, which would be on the players' backs, particularly during the winter, and the fact that there were no numbers on their shirts until the 1930s. So that would have made it difficult. However, there were photographs of players in papers, and papers sold a lot of copies at that time. The real well-known players, however, like Steve Blomer, Billy Meredith, Crompton of Blackburn Rovers, they would have been known in most places across England. And then Path News came along, and it then started showing the cup finals, and those were in the cinemas. So people... Once they started seeing that, they knew who they, they certainly knew who people were because everybody saw it. These were big, acknowledged stars of their of their of their period. So, how else did the laws of the game differ back in 1914? Well, there were no substitutes, so players continued to play on even when heavily injured. The offside law was a three-player rule, and goalkeepers had just been banned from handling the ball anywhere inside their own half. Pitches often resembled quagmires, facilities were basic and most players weren't well paid. Clubs would take their, their, their squad of players, or a small squad, because in the main, the first team was the first team, the reserves were the reserves, uh, they would take them away for special training. This involved additional training, but the central focus of taking them away was also to keep them off the drink. Working-class footballers were prolific drinkers, uh, prior to the First first World War. Even before the 1914-15 season had got underway, one thing was already assured. It was going to be the most controversial and pivotal season in Football League history. On August the 3rd, Sir Edward Grey addressed the House of Commons. I ask the House 
from the point of view of British interests, to consider what may be at stake. A month earlier, following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and after a decade of rising tensions across Europe, disaster struck. Great Britain declared war on Germany on August the 4th, 1914, at 11pm. Here's Steve Jenkins again, author of They Took the Lead. They Took the Lead is the story of Clapton Orient's major contribution to the footballers' battalion in the Great War. I chose the title They Took the Lead because that's exactly what Clapton Orient did at the time. When the country was uh, in great peril, uh, war had obviously just broken out in August 1914, but professional sport was still taking place. And uh, whilst it was seen as a way of um, allowing people to uh, get over the stresses of warfare and all the concerns about their families and friends that were over in France, it was thought a good idea that sport should continue in that format. And indeed, that's the way it was for the first few weeks. However, when the casualty figures started coming through and being published in the newspapers, there was a major uh, backlash from the general public, particularly as regards professional football. The hour struck. The ultimatum ran out. Sir Edward Grey pronounced the obituary of peace. Cricket was fortunate because the cricket season had come to an end. Rugby was mainly uh, an amateur sport at the time, therefore the game was curtailed almost immediately, and that left uh, professional football to stand on its own. So when the, uh, uh, the bad news of all the casualties started coming through, the players were, felt, they were made to feel very uncomfortable, uh, and instead of being cheered, they were actually jeered. Hi, I'm Dave Yates, a very supporter all my life and in the past few years I've been writing in connection with my uh, work with the National Football Museum on the history of football. The players at that time, it was the um, retain and transfer system and professional footballers had a rolling year's contract and at the end of the season they were either retained by the club or they were put on the transfer list. So the players had a contractual obligation to the clubs. It was seen um, that football matches could be a, a good way for uh, recruitment as, as, as young men gathered to, to watch the local team that people, uh, the great and the good, would stand up at half-time and start appealing for uh, more young men to join the forces. Oh, 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 it's a lovely Here's Mark Metcalf again. There was a feeling that the war wouldn't last very long. Uh, that was very, very prevalent. And then eventually, uh, some of the authorities saw football grounds as good locations to recruit people to go off to war. So th those were, were the reasonings behind it. By about, it would have been October that there was a significant amount of negative press coverage. And in part, I think that was also a class factor came to play in this. Uh, rugby and cricket were distinctly middle class. Uh, football wasn't. Those who played cricket and rugby didn't necessarily rely on their living for this. Uh, the lads who played football did do so. Crowds were still significantly going through the gates. And I think that's the reason why football continued at that particular period. Nonetheless, pressure was intensifying. The message to able young men, famously put by Lord Kitchener, was Britain needs you. 
but football was lagging behind. Alex Jackson is from the National Football Museum. In its own way, we used to sort of the propaganda war, the First World War between the British and the Germans. On the home front, there was almost like a propaganda war going on between the critics of football and its defenders about is it a patriotic game or is it doing its bit for the war effort? And it's, it's absolutely fascinating uh, sort of looking at those debates and sort of how they uh, were discussed at the time. In protest, newspapers decided to stop publishing football stories. Over the match results, attendances also dropped significantly, edging smaller clubs closer to financial ruin and well-known public figures such as Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle also publicly criticised the game. There were even calls in Parliament for the Prime Minister to introduce legislation that would stop the season from continuing. So with the arguments rumbling on and the British Army still dwarfed by their German counterparts, football decided to make a stand. Here's Steve Jenkins again. The FA decided to discuss this uh problem with the War Office to see if they could get professional footballers and the clubs more involved in the war effort. Prior to all this, up in Scotland, there was a similar scenario with Heart of Midlothian getting involved uh, through the local MP, Sir George McRae, who felt exactly the same way uh, and, and could feel that of all the, the problems that football was experiencing north of the border. And he uh, had this idea of getting the, uh, the Hearts team and also many other clubs, including Wraith Rovers, Dunfermline, Forkirk and the like, to join up into the local regiment, the 16th Royal Scots. And overnight, public opinion was swayed. Hence the uh, decision to form a Powell's Battalion uh, in England at Fulham Town Hall on the 15th of December. The 17th Middlesex, which became more commonly known as the Footballers' Battalion. Addressing the players that night at Fulham Town Hall was the Right Honourable William Joynson Hicks, who in an impassioned speech invited the players to a game of games against one of the finest teams in the world. It worked. By mid-January 1915, the battalion had attracted almost half the volunteers needed to bring it up to full strength, and by the end of March it was complete. One of the first clubs to enlist en masse were Clapton Orient. Captain Henry Wells Holland, the chairman of Clapton Orient at the time, was a military man by background anyway. So when war broke out, it was always his intention to get his lads to do their bit. He was actually involved with the committee at Fulham Town Hall on the 15th of December and was very proactive in encouraging his side to enlist en masse into the footballers' battalion. So it's no surprise that at that meeting, 10 Orient players joined up there and then. And their example led from, to clubs from around the country to do their bit as well and join up. Hi there, I'm Simon Bauer, work for the communications department for the uh, Football Association. You saw whole sides going away together and it was quite a, an obvious thing, I suppose. They needed fit young people with good camaraderie and uh, where to look would be football. And, you know, that's true to this day as well. You know, people still go to the bar afterwards. They play on a Saturday and Sunday in the freezing cold. So I think that's still, that camaraderie still exists in the, in the grassroots game and right through to the Premier League. The creation of the Footballers' Battalion, inspired by Sir George McRae and the 16th Royal Scots, also encouraged supporters to sign up. They could stand shoulder to shoulder in battle with their heroes, plus, in some cases, play football with them too. For many British men, war was an exciting adventure, a chance to escape the drudgery of the coal mine and see the world for themselves. Here's Steve Jenkins again. You have to realise, we have to realise that at the time, most of the adult population hadn't travelled far 
if they'd gone to the coast for a, a day trip or something or out to the forest that was a big excursion for them to go on a train was not an everyday occurrence let alone to go on a ship to go across to France a foreign country the chance to meet foreign people to try and converse in a foreign language to try a foreign beer so you can imagine they would have been galloping and running to the uh, enlisting offices to get their names put on on the paper to join up and not only that but particularly with footballers their natural fitness would stand them in good stead uh, when they had to move around uh, in the front line and dodge the bullets if you see what I mean every footballer that enlisted for the footballers battalion was given military training but they were still permitted to turn out for their club whenever possible that meant the season continued as normal at least until an Easter game at Old Trafford, which made headlines for all the wrong reasons. Mark Metcalf and Dave Yates pick up the story. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was April and, and Manchester United were struggling to stay in the uh, first division and they were playing their great rivals, uh, Liverpool. There were a number of players on each side uh, who were involved in a betting scandal. The match had supposedly been fixed to finish 2-0 to United and uh, when this uh, Liverpool player hit the bar he was surrounded and remonstrated at by, by teammates as to what the heck did he think he was uh, doing. Within hours of the game being finished uh, there were rumours that were circulating that the game had been fixed and, and, and to cut a very long story short it was proven that the game was fixed and then seven players, including some who actually hadn't even played in the game, were uh, suspended sin die, and one of them was Sandy Turnbull. This guy was a, a United legend. He'd scored the very first goal when United played the first game at Old Trafford. He'd won the FA Cup for them against Bristol City, scoring the only goal of the game. He was a bit of a brusque character, constantly rowing with the, with the directors about how much he was being paid, and uh, and he was a bit of a bristly, bit of a bristly character. But he but he knew where the goal was. He was brave, and he was exceptionally talented, particularly in the air. An all-round good team player. But he also had a, a bit of an attitude on him, and he was somebody who generally stuck up for himself and for his rights and for the rights of other people. There are some similarities, I would argue, with, uh, with Wayne Rooney, uh, both the way he played the game and his general uh, demeanour, his attitude. He uh, was a working-class lad like uh, Rooney is. He certainly never earned the money that Wayne Rooney uh, acquired. Now football is the pleasant game, played in the sun, played in the rain, and the team that gets me excited, Manchester United. Manchester, Manchester United. He enrolled in 1916 and originally he was with the uh, Footballers Battalion which were formed but then he joined the East Surrey Regiment. He died on uh, May the 3rd, uh, 1917 when the East Surreys, they stormed a, a village uh, 10 miles of Arras he was a brave man on the field, no question about that. And he was clearly a, a very brave man off it. And, and subsequently, obviously, that's what, what cost, cost him his life. Fred Turnbull was the only current Manchester United player to die in the war. All of the players implicated in the match-fixing scandal later had their lifetime bans lifted by the FA in recognition of their service, including Turnbull after his death.
At the end of the 1914-15 season, both the Football League and the Southern League announced they were going to suspend their league programmes for the remainder of the war. It led to emotional scenes across the country on the final day of the season as players prepared to join the millions in the mud. Here's Steve Jenkins. Many, if not most of the players, had already signed up and uh, them going to training camps, etc., having their medicals and getting ready to go to France. And there was no doubt that this would be the last occasion that the Orient supporters would have to see of their team before they went over to France. And so it was against Leicester Foss, now Leicester City, a crowd of over 20,000 packed into the Orient Millfields Road ground. And uh, the place was jammed to the rafters as um, scenes of supporters on, on the roof of the stands. Uh, and this can all be seen on YouTube, by the way. There is footage of this. Very minimal footage, no more than, I suppose, uh, 90 seconds to two minutes, if we're lucky. But this uh, footage was shown in the theatres in London and, I dare say, further afield to show what football was doing as regards to the war effort. The O's were fortunate to win 2-0. And uh, straight after the game, the Orient players got out of their football kit and into uniform and still, I dare say, sweating profusely, uh, formed up with the rest of the battalion and marched around the pitch complete the band to a very emotional farewell before going off to their final training camp with the army before going to France. So with Everton safely crowned as first division champions, one of the most contentious and controversial seasons in English football history was almost at an end. All that remained was the FA Cup final, now known as the Khaki Cup final. Sheffield United beat Chelsea 3-0 with huge numbers of uniformed soldiers in attendance. Here's Dave Yates again. The Earl of Derby, having presented the cup, uh, made what, what became a now quite a, a famous speech where he, he was saying um, that now having played all these games uh, there's now a, a sterner game that has to be played and, and, and it was a kind of final bringing down of the curtain on, on, on football and now let's, let's get on with beating the Germans basically. I shut up you chap, here's the colonel going to speak. My lad. Before we set foot in the land of France, I want to say that we are now going to show the world what we are made of. We may have a tough fight, but you know as well as I do that we shall come out on top. Lord Kitchener has told you what he expects of you. Get this, in total, 16 million people died during the Great War incomprehensible. Amongst them, 213 professional footballers. They were often living in the most claustrophobic conditions imaginable, in trenches full of mud and squalor, surrounded by gas, disease and often under attack by shells. There are stories everywhere you look. The Victoria Cross was given to Bradford Park Avenue's Donald Bell, while Northampton Town's Walter Tull became the first Afro-Caribbean to be commissioned as an infantry officer in the British Army. As for Clapton Orient, well, unfortunately, they lost three of their star players during the war. Here's Steve Jenkins. Let me, let me explain to you what happened with the Football's Battalion generally with the Battle of the Somme, which is one of the major conflicts in the Great War, as we all know. Whilst it's well documented, obviously the 1st of July was perhaps the blackest day in, in British Army history uh, for casualties and the disastrous planning that took place of that, uh, that war. 
Um, it didn't end after the first day, as I say, it continued into November. By then, uh, it wasn't too long before the casualty figures were starting to hit the 17th. And uh, the Orient, certainly uh, the first one to, I suppose, yeah, lose his... I'm trying to t- talk about this in a delicate way, but with passion, I suppose, was uh, Billy Jonas. He was in De- uh, Delville's Wood with... Uh, uh, Richard McFadden stuck in a trench together and uh, he decided that um, he had enough it get to anyone mentally, I suppose, the stress of everything and uh, he decided to ma- make a dash for the lines but as soon as he jumped up over the top, one bullet finished him off and uh, his best pal, uh, Richard McFadden, witnessed that. So he must have, I don't know if, trying to put it into context, how he must have felt at the time. But I suppose if you think of any of your best mates, how would you feel if you heard about them dying suddenly, let alone seeing it happen in front of your eyes? and then having the character uh, to write back. The next player to, to lose his life was that uh, man mountain, George Scott. He was taken prisoner by the Germans and taken back to a military hospital. And uh, it's whilst there that uh, he seemed to have had a bit of a rough time. Nobody knows exactly what happened there, but uh, for him to go downhill so fast, uh, it wouldn't surprise me to think that maybe that... Uh, he was given a bit of a rough time and he would have fought back and maybe maybe try to make a run for it, but certainly he died of his wounds whilst in the hospital. And lastly, uh, Richard McFadden, the ultimate star of the side. He was leading a line of troops along a trench near the village of Serre, just a, a mile or so away from Delville Wood, and uh, he and his troops were hit by a shell blast exploding. And uh, I'll never forget my first visit over to visit his grave, uh, would have been about, I think now, 13, 14 years ago. It's the first thing I noticed when I looked at his headstone, I looked to one side, and there's a, a German headstone there. It felt really strange, but at the same time, a very proud moment for us to stand at the grave of Richard McFadden, thinking that probably no one has been there for almost a century. And there we were standing there, so close to one of the uh, iconic players of Orient's history. Dave Yates. One player I did uh, research was uh, a Berry and Port Vale player called Alf Smith. He served in France, um, was at uh, uh, most of the um, hotspots leading up to the Battle of the Somme. And at the Battle of the Somme on, on the first day, um, he was machine gunned in, in the chest. He did, uh, as football began again um, in 1919, he, he, he did re-sign for Port Vale and played uh, a handful of games and then unfortunately um, his, his wounds got wounds got the better of him. Another footballer caught up in the war was the legendary Fred Spikesley of both the Wednesday and England. He had scored the quickest ever cup final goal back in 1896. Here's Mark Metcalf. He was in uh, Germany when the war kicked off. There were a lot of footballers. There were a lot of people in, in Germany from England. What happened was that in the October, uh, the German newspapers inaccurately reported that all of the Germans in the UK had been rounded up. In fact, that did subsequently happen, but not at that particular period. So there's a great patriotic wave which swept through the country which said that the English who were still in Germany should be arrested. And there were about 4,500 were arrested. They went to a, a, a place called Ruleben Prison of War Camp. The English consul who'd been in Nuremberg, he was pleading with the man to allow him to allow Fred to leave. 
without us having absolutely none of it. You know, you fit, you fit, you fit. You're going to need to stay here. So he couldn't think what to do. And then what he decided to do was to get boiling water and basically apply boiling water to his his leg. So when he appeared in front of the doctor, the doctor said, "Oh, you're clearly not fit to fight in the war." Going back to that instant when uh, Richard McFadden witnessed his pal uh, William being killed in front of his eyes, I still can't grasp how he must have felt at the time. And um, I suppose the letter that was sent back from the Somme to Clapton Orient, out of the blue, must have rocked the club on its heels. And the fact that the O's were adamant they wanted to publish it in the Orient programme at the time shows you how highly rated both players were at the time, and particularly at that moment, uh, William Jonas. So I'm going to read the letter that uh, Richard McFadden sent back to the Orient. The club received a letter from Richard McFadden which read, I, Richard McFadden, sadly report the death of my friend and O's colleague, William Jonas, on the morning of Thursday, the 27th of July, age 26. Both Willie and I were trapped in a trench near the front in Somme, France. Willie turned to me and said, Goodbye, Mac. Best of luck and special love to my sweetheart Mary Jane and best regards to the lads at Orient. Before I could reply to him, he was up and over. And no sooner had he jumped up out of the trench, my best friend of nearly 20 years was killed before my eyes. Words cannot express my feelings at this time. Yours, Company Sergeant Major Richard McFadden. You're listening to Football and the Great War from We Are Going Up. Despite the barbarity and bloodshed all around, one story from the Great War still resonates more than any other in our public consciousness. TV shows, music videos, adverts, plays, books and even podcasts have been made about it. It's still argued about by historians to this day. On Christmas Eve 1914, so the story goes, on parts of the Western Front, everything went quiet. Hello, I'm Carol Swords. I'm the curator of Pitsanger Manor and Gallery. Crossing the Field is an exhibition commemorating First World War and particularly a moment in it, Christmas 1914, where the troops laid down their arms and um, played football. Um, it's quite an emotional story. It's about the fact that they started singing uh, Christmas carols and then they came out and they exchanged gifts. And the most extraordinary part of it all is they organised football matches between the two sides. It's actually quite bleak, the First World War. Um, you know, when you look at how many people died in the Battle of the Somme, 56,000 in one day, I was looking for something of humanity in it. And when I um, realised that the truce had taken place, the fact that there was this laying down of arms and the fact that they did play football and not being a football fan, it was quite uh, revelationary to me. And I realised that um, it's about the humanity and it's about how men connect to each other. It's about the idea of um, finding something that they could both, that they didn't have to speak about that they could actually just do and I've actually sort of realised through doing the exhibition sort of the passion that football um, invites. Open now at the National Football Museum in Manchester is a new exhibition called The Greater Game. 
Here's Alex Jackson again. It's very interesting. The sort of the the myth and reality that's sort of grown up over say, over the last hundred years. In some senses, the myth has sort of come where there's been football matches. They've been very organised. There's like a formal schools and things like that. What is probably more likely to have happened, and which we do have some evidence for, in a, a wonderful diary written from the time as after the initial exchanges of gifts and trying a bit of sort of uh, pidgin English or German with each other, that uh, tin cans or in this case from the diary, there's a little rubber it refers to a little rubber ball being produced and naturally a game took place. My name is Bob Gamble and I'm responsible for commemorative activity at the Royal British Legion. This isn't necessarily something that the historians would necessarily buy into, but my personal view is, um, having spent quite a bit of time in the army myself, is that it's worth remembering that the guys that were in each set of trenches, they weren't voting for war, they were there, they were a consequence of political decisions, but whether the guy comes from Lower Saxony or he comes from Yorkshire, the fact of the matter is they were stuck somewhere, they didn't want to be, in the cold, quite close together, and the opportunity came up, they found the common ground, and the common ground was football. Whatever the truth of what happened on Christmas Day 1914, even if it was just a kickabout, it does speak to the universalism of football and its power to unite even in the most inhumane of circumstances. This year, the FA, together with the Premier League and the Football League, and in partnership with the British Council, launched a series of programmes and events under the title Football Remembers. They included a charity match played between the British and German armies at Aldershot, watched by Sir Bobby Charlton, and joint team photos at games across the country. Here's Simon Bauer from the FA again. The response that we've had from it is incredible and that's from grassroots clubs from under seven teams right through to the Premier League and you know it's gone across all the world because um, the Foreign Office they sent out you know instructions to embassies from you know El Salvador to New York all of them have been getting involved so it's been quite an incredible thing so definitely check out um, footballremembers.com if you have a have a second to. It's great to see that people picked up on it so early and it wasn't just a case of um, people had seen the Premier League teams doing it let's do that. Um, there was a lot of communication from the FA side to to the grassroots leagues and also um, the players at junior level to, to get involved in this initiative. Other initiatives, one of the main ones which was British Council and the FA came together was to send out, it was around 30,000 education packs um, which had stories of World War One troops and how they you know got by really in the trenches and one of the things that came from that was asking the pupils to design a memorial which would eventually be displayed at the National Memorial Arboretum. We had the Duke of Cambridge and Theo Walcott judging the um, the drawings that were were sent in by the children, and eventually uh, whittled down. And um, a pupil from Newcastle called Spencer Turner, he was um, he was chosen, and now it's on display at the uh, National Memorial Arboretum. It was unveiled on Friday, the 12th of December, and um, the Duke himself was there to unveil it, along with Roy Hodgson, Greg Dyke, and the Sports Minister Helen Grant. Whether or not you fully believe the story of the Christmas truce, the Great War was certainly a real watershed moment in the development of football both at home and overseas. In August 1917, a tournament was launched in the northeast of England called the Munitionettes Cup. It was the first real significant breakthrough in women's football. 
Here's Alex Jackson. Women's football had been played before the First World War, but very sporadically and not on a sort of great scale. Uh, but what you have during the, the war is a lot more women sort of working in factories, coming together, and they're looking for to have their the recreation like their male colleagues, who often go off and have their own football teams or recreational clubs. And the women take up football, and it, it becomes quite a popular movement. And it also, but it also links in. It's not just for women workers to uh, have a rest from working the long hours. It's also often used to raise money for uh, various different war charities raising funds for comfort funds for soldiers or POW funds, a whole range and so in their own way the women are doing their bit as well by playing sport and also helping the war effort. The war introduced football to new countries and cultures and it became a mass spectator sport overseas. However when football resumed after the war in 1919 it wasn't all plain sailing. Here's football historian Mark Metcalf again. Clearly the clubs had lost some of their players. Many you know, had, had given their lives. Others uh, were badly injured. Some clubs had had their stadiums damaged as well. Many clubs, because they didn't have any income, uh, were in serious financial problems. But the uh, Football League also was expanded after the war. So I think that was a demonstration that whilst football was struggling... There was definitely a knowledge that football was increasingly popular. With the first division expanded from 20 to 22 clubs, the Football League had a decision to make on the two additional sides. Manchester United's 2-0 win against Liverpool in the match-fixing scandal of 1914 was allowed to stand, which meant United survived relegation. However, as Mark explains, it had a knock-on effect. It was agreed that relegated uh, Chelsea should remain in the league. However, the other additional place, it was argued, really should go to the team that had finished second bottom in the league or perhaps third in the second division. And what happened was that Sir Herbert Norris, who ran Arsenal at the time and was an MP, he said no, that the team which finished sixth in the second division should get promoted, which was his team. Now, football had taken quite a bit of stick over the failure to deal adequately with the Manchester United situation. And Norris, behind closed doors, basically said, look, you've allowed Man United to get away with it. If you don't promote us, then I'm going to lift the lid on serious financial and political corruption within the FA and within the Football League. So what happened was Arsenal were in sixth place were allowed to go up it's my contention and my Arsenal friends dispute this that all of the subsequent trophies Arsenal have won which is in fact all of the trophies they've ever won uh, should, should, should be knocked back but it's not a popular view <laughs> 100 years on from the start of the Great War football and football fans are paying their respects in ever increasing numbers Steve Jenkins is the author of They Took the Lead it's amazing now that there's a football corner on the song we've got the Football League Memorial we've got the Orient Memorial and then we've got the 16th Royal Scott Memorial, you know, where obviously the Scottish clubs are, are, are remembered. It is hard these days because although you can see the scars in the countryside still where the, many of the trenches were, the countryside's green rather than brown um, at the time of the Battle of the Somme in particular. Although it started on the 1st of July, it dragged on until November. And by that time, the countryside was a quagmire. There's reports of many of the soldiers that were fighting here disappearing, not just from shell blasts, but from drowning and disappearing under the, the liquid mud. But you go over there now, the countryside is very, very similar to Devon. You can still hear the songbirds twittering in the background, as they did before half past seven on the 1st of July, 1916.
The footballers who served in the Great War are also being commemorated back at home, in schools as part of the Football Remembers campaign, plus also in museums and art galleries. Alex Jackson is from the National Football Museum in Manchester. The Great Game is our temporary exhibition about football and the First World War, and we started planning this probably about a year and a half ago, and it's a heritage and lottery funded project. Uh, and what we're doing is telling the story of football throughout the First World War, both on the, at the front and at home, and looking at how it impacted on on the lives of both players and fans. What's been really fascinating is looking at team photographs and medals and thinking, realising, well, actually, this guy played in, say, the 1920s, but he's went through the First World War, and you start uncovering these stories behind guys who achieved so much. We've got a whole wonderful section about players who came back from the war and were winning England caps and FA Cup medals in the 20s, and there's three of them. Samuel Wadsworth came back and he was rejected by his club, Blackburn Rovers. Tom Wilson, who also played with them at Huddersfield, he came back and was rejected by Sunderland. Sunderland also rejected another young player from their reserves called Jimmy Seed, who'd been gassed, and they thought he was unfit, wasn't able to be able to play. And he went again on, went to play for England. He captained Sheffield Wednesday to two back-to-back titles. And so it's really you—you you start trying to put these new stories to objects you already have. But at the same time, what's really wonderful is people there with the centenary are looking at their own family history, and we've had families come in and loan us some really wonderful items. And it's just amazing what just people sometimes bring in. There's some actually fantastic stuff. Carol Swords is curator of the Crossing the Field exhibition at the Pitsanger Manor and Gallery in London. The exhibition is divided into two. Um, on one side of the gallery, you have an exploration and examination about what the First World War meant, what it meant then and what it means now, and about how artists are interpreting that. They're contemporary artists and they're looking at a historical occasion. And then on the other side of the gallery, you actually have the whole of the football um, memorabilia, the, the images, the photographs and the um, sculptures of the stadiums. Jürgen's work are of um, football matches that take place in small towns, villages, on the side of um, graveyards, next to uh, water uh, reservoirs, and they're all about ordinary people with not tens of thousands of followers, but just ten people playing matches. And I think it's actually set in small towns all over Belgium, but it could equally be England or anywhere else in the world for that matter. Um, our public relates to them very well because obviously they're extremely accessible images, and there's something about the passion for football even in these small towns. Back in November, Millwall became the first English club to play in army style colours when they wore a special camouflage kit for their home game against Brentford at the New Den. All proceeds were donated to Headley Court in Surrey to help injured troops. Hi, my name's Stuart Locke. I'm head of retail at Millwall Football Club. I think we like to be different and, um, you know, what, what we wanted to bring out of this is a sense of togetherness and we always say over here we're a family and we're a club that support the armed forces um, sort of all year round and um, being the first ever club to um, wear a camouflage shirt for one game um, to represent 100 years was, was you know, a, a huge thing and a, a great honour for this football club. The shirt sold out within a day. Um, we, we only first ordered 1,500 shirts, which we could have actually doubled the sales. As I say, little did we know the impact that we would have, not only on what we would call our Millwall family, the, the footballing world. Bob Gamble is responsible for commemorative activity at the Royal British Legion. Sport is an integral part of training. It teaches team spirit uh, and it, you know, it's about activity and working together and all of those things. But the fact of the matter is, 
you know, at the risk of running a cliche, football is is the universal game. Um, so when you look at activities going on now, you know, uh, like the truce match, the fact of the matter is, doesn't matter what your language is, people can play football, uh, and you find common ground. And we, we the Legion, are uh, quite actively uh, involved with the current armed forces in terms of sport because it's a, it's a platform that allows like-minded individuals to get together, have a commonality of interest, and from that work out what else we might be able to share interest in. Christmas Day 2014 marks a century since the Christmas truce when the shells stopped, the bombs stopped, the sound of war was silenced. Not only did the Great War change the world, it also changed the sports we love. It became the truly global game we know today. The World Cup began less than 20 years later. And the professional game at home soared to new levels of popularity. Ultimately, um, if it hadn't have been for these players and the administrators, then the clubs that people follow today, they wouldn't be in existence. So that, that's, that's what's, what's important about the game. It's just very poignant to sort of look at it through the lens of sport because with like, for example, looking at how these players from different clubs, those clubs in the vast majority are still here and they're in some ways are still a permanent, one of the rare permanent links between that age and now. Other institutions have gone away, but I think we can all still sort of bond over imagining what happened to the, the fans and the players of our own particular clubs. Looking back and to see what was experienced, uh, it certainly wasn't a nice place on the, on the Western Front in those trenches. So we're very privileged to, to look back that those people did fight um, to, to have what we have today. Football as this art of being able to speak to the world and it's probably one of the sports that you can go to every country in the world and be able to talk to somebody across the table, bump into another football supporter and it has a platform that everybody listens and to be part of the sort of uh, silence that we had here, the minute silence and not even hear a pin drop, it just shows the respect. Two hundred and thirteen professional footballers died in the Great War. Lest we forget. Lest we forget.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.